Lord, we pray as we come and gather around your word that we will not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We thank you for this amazing book of Colossians. Lord, would it speak again into our hearts today, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. We've just been hearing about a practical outworking of this verse or these verses. Let me just read them to you. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. Everything hangs on that. Everything. Everything that we are, everything that we do hangs on that. But sometimes when we read that and then we think about everyday life, we can think, well, is what I'm doing a loving decision? Am I loving God with this decision? Am I not loving God with this decision? Anyone like to hazard a guess at how many decisions the average person makes in a day? Come on, somebody. 1,200. Anyone else? 10,000 from the back? Anyone else? It's like an auction. <laughs> You've just bought a horse, by the way. Anyone else? Go on, Emily. A million. It's somewhere in between those kind of figures. It's actually 35,000. The average person, so Psychology Today, a reputable source, always check your sources, says that there are 35,000 decisions that a human being makes in a day. That's, on average, two per second. Now, you're thinking, I don't make anything like that many decisions in a day. Now, most of them are subconscious. You're deciding now whether to scratch your nose. I'm looking around to see whether anyone's giving in. You're deciding whether to yawn as I start going on a bit. You're deciding whether to move to the left or to the right to make yourself a bit more comfortable. You're deciding whether to put your coat on because it is quite chilly in here. A lot of those decisions we're not consciously processing. But actually, they are going on in our subconscious. Now, over recent weeks, as we've looked at the book of Colossians, we've looked at transformation, about instinctive Christian living. If you were here last week, Mike was encouraging us to fix our eyes on things above to have Jesus as the one who we um, imitate, who we follow. Now, in the first part of chapter 3 of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, um, essentially what Paul has been doing is dealing with the broad brushstrokes of application. Because of who Jesus is, this is then how you live. And we've had talks about the different attitudes to have and attitudes not to have. And then all of a sudden, Paul dives straight in with some very detailed teaching. So if you have a Bible in front of you, and hopefully we can get it on the screen as well, if you turn to Colossians chapter 3, I'm actually going to read back a little bit. I'm going to cause chaos this morning, aren't I? I'm going to read back from verse 15. The only reason being is, I've said this before, but sometimes the the, the dividing points in the scripture make it quite difficult to understand the flow. So I'm just going to go back a little bit so this doesn't hit us straight out of context. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are deserving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray again. Lord, I want to pray that our decisions in life, the way that we choose to live, will radiate the nature of Christ. And Lord, as we look at these complex verses, these difficult verses, just give us wisdom to see your heart. And we ask it in your name. Amen. One of the great things about preaching through books of the Bible is that you can't skip over difficult issues. One of the worst things about preaching through books of the Bible is that you can't skip the difficult passages. You just have to talk about them. And this is one of these passages today. I don't think anyone is going to pretend that this passage in Colossians is an easy one. There are so many things to deal with because Paul deals with what are essentially day-to-day relationships. But there is so much of Paul's background that is lost in history that really eludes us, that we're not quite sure exactly the situation in Colossae that he's speaking to. So I offer what I bring this morning, I offer it very lightly, humbly, I'm hopefully going to be sensitive to some of the issues that are here. My words are not God's words. Please do not take them as such. The text remains authoritative, even if I get this all wrong. But I offer this to you as we go through. Because what Paul is doing here, he is looking at the everyday relationships of life. The time where we spend 95% of our time, whether that's in the home or whether that's at work, And he's saying, actually, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is where Christian life is lived out. You know, you can put a mask on for the 5% of the life that you're in church. You can't do it for the 95% where you're elsewhere. And so he starts to look at key relationships. Now, to the Colossians, these verses wouldn't come as a real surprise. Because in Colossae, which was a Greek city, the philosophers of the day used to write at great length lists of how families should behave. And the Stoic philosophers, particularly, they witted on endlessly about the responsibilities of wives, of husbands, of slaves, of masters, of children, and they went on and on giving this whole load of tick list rules. Paul doesn't come and say, here's your tick list, here's your thing of things to tick off. But he says, this is what a life lived out as discipleship looks like. This is the kind of lifestyle of submission that we're called to, of love and submission, because first of all, we put Jesus first. Now, if we were in Colossae when this was written and we received Paul's letter saying this, it would be radical, absolutely radical. It is so different to what the Greek philosophers of the day were writing. They were telling wives to do this, this, and this, and husbands this, this, and this. Paul comes and he looks at the principles behind what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we're faced with three different relationships, the husband and the wife, parent and child, and then the work relationship, the slave and the master. Now, I'm very conscious that last one, when we're talking about slavery, throws up a whole load of issues, which we will cover very briefly. There are also many other key relationships in life that are not on that list. 
It might be with friends or with siblings or with neighbors or with boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm also very conscious that not all of this list applies to all of us. In fact, it's impossible that it all applies to all of us because it's to different people. Some of us in this room today, some of you watching at home, you are single or you don't have children or you don't have young children at home or you're not in employment or you don't employ other people. But what I'm hoping is that by looking at some of the principles, we can see things on God's heart that we can apply to all other areas of life. So please stick with me, even if one of the bits doesn't apply to you. So really, what Paul starts off by doing is talking about everyday life lived out in light of the gospel. And Paul reframes every relationship through who we are in Christ. And he doesn't leave us to guess who we are in Christ. He tells us, in fact, he told the um, church in Galatia, he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. A bit later on in our service today, we will take communion. The cross is the great leveler. There is neither male, free, Jew, Gentile. We are all exactly the same, all fully equal, all have the same status before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so out of that status emerges a new way of being human, being part of the new creation, being called to flourish as God intends us to flourish. It's also worth noting that without exception in this passage, Paul writes to individuals to take notice of. Now, it has to be said that these verses have been abused many times over the centuries. They've been used to control people. They've used been particularly and sadly to control women in ways that Paul never intended. And these verses must be treated with great respect. They are always written to the person addressed to take note of. Just to give an example of what I mean, I can't take verse 18 where it says, wives, submit to your husband, and go to Claire this afternoon and say, Claire, you have not listened to verse 18. That is not what it's for. That verse is not for me. That verse is for Claire. The verse for me is a verse about me loving Claire. Do you see what I mean? They're addressed to individuals. So what is Paul on about? We'll get there. Let's talk about husbands and wives. Christian marriage in the UK is under a huge amount of pressure. All the various Christian charities who work alongside um, supporting marriage would say the same thing. 42% of marriages in the UK end in divorce. And the, the differentiation between those who are disciples of Jesus is sadly not that different. But we shouldn't be surprised, in a way. We have all of us probably in our pockets. In fact, mine isn't in my pocket. It's in my bag over there. We have phones that have almost every visible temptation known to humanity accessible to us at a few clicks. We have things that will draw us away from godly life at our fingertips, and it's putting pressure of untold um, sort of emphasis onto all kinds of relationships. Now, these verses, at their heart, what they do is they provide for a situation where a husband and wife can flourish. It's about human flourishing. So we get three instructions. Wife submits to your husband, verse 18. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them, verse 19. Now, there are parallel verses to these in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul gives a bit more detail. Now, I did preach on these about three years ago, and amazingly, I think I still agree with myself. So, if you want to go onto the church's website, you will find that sermon up somewhere. But I'm going to leave those verses up on the screen. I'm not going to read them out, because they they would take quite a while, but we will refer to Ephesians 5 as well. Submission. Submission. 
Submission starts out of reverence to Christ. We are all called to keep our eyes on things above. We are all then called to submit to one another. Submit, give way to one another. Christ, who is the head, we submit to him. Now, the word of headship in this passage, I've talked about this before. It is not a domineering word, but it is a word of headship such as the head of a river, the source, the origin. It is Christ who gives life to the church. So what does it mean when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands? Well, this is my take on it. Weigh it, take it away, and you do what you will with it. But in Paul's world, the wife could not hold public office. The wife was very much the property of her husband. She was expected to be um, the the person who made the family's clothes, to, to look after home life. She was expected to toe the line in a public setting. And while there was quite a degree of flexibility around this, the basic model of that relationship couldn't be challenged. That was in the public setting. Now, the ancient world is full of stories of slightly different things going on in the home life, of wives controlling their husband, of wives manipulating their husbands, of wives telling their husbands what to do. And so we get from empresses of Rome and later on Byzantium right the way through to slaves who the the man was the front piece for, for their wife, and that was the way that it happened, and there's a lot of evidence of that in ancient literature. So this is where it gets a bit interesting, because this word submit, in the original Greek language, apologies, I'm going to go on about Greek just for a minute, is quite different to the word that we have in our Bibles. It's not about being told what to do. But the word submit in the ancient Greek, you can check all this out in Strong's Concordance, I have to because my Greek is very, very limited. It's a military word. It's a word that is used militarily to support and get behind That is the word that is used. So some people have suggested that actually our translation has twisted it a little bit. And actually what Paul says is wives, support, get behind, allay yourself in battle for your husband. Do that thing. Get behind your husband. Support them 100%. Deploy yourself. Fight for your husband. Don't manipulate. Don't control. But as is fitting in the Lord, arrange yourself in battle. I like that imagery. It's a very different image than perhaps springs to mind. Be present for them. Be there for them. Support them. Encourage them. Enable your husband's flourishing. Now, I'm going to move quickly on because I don't like talking about that verse particularly because I'm not a wife. I'm going to move on to talk about husbands. Paul moves us on to the responsibilities of the husbands. In verse 19, husbands are told to love their wives. Now, we live in a society where marriage is based on love. That's, that's the dream of marriage, isn't it? Is that marriage will be a loving relationship. Tomorrow, we will have the joy of Dan and Chloe standing down here saying we love and cherish one another. And that's what we base marriage upon. Rewind 1900 years to ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Marriage was not based on that at all. So you could end up with two families who says, right, we've got two teenagers. They'll do all right together. Shove them together. Get them married. Would that produce a loving relationship? Sometimes, sometimes not. Or, and this is where it could have been really tragic, sometimes older men would be betrothed to teenage girls. And by older, 60, 70-year-olds, and they would be in a marriage relationship. And so you would get these really terrible situations that had no love in them whatsoever. 
So when Paul says, husbands, love your wives, this is incredibly radical. We have to hear this. This is really, really radical stuff. Paul is not saying, tolerate your wife. He's not saying, be nice to her. He's not saying, do things that make her sort of think you're all right. He's saying, love her. This is the language of Christ to the church. What Christ has for the church, you as husbands have for your wives. This self-giving, sacrificial, non-negotiable, unconditional, unwavering, non-wandering love. That's the kind of love that as husbands we're called to have. Now, love is not a fluttery feeling. It can be, but it's not that ultimately. But it's putting somebody else front and center and wanting the absolute best for them. Wanting them to flourish. And so as the wife submits and the husband loves, then what do we find? There is an environment where flourishing of a relationship can take place. The great philosopher, Rihanna, she sang a song a decade ago. Now, don't reference the rest of the song because it's really not that appropriate. But she says this. She says, I want you to make me feel like I'm the only girl in the world. That is what Paul is saying. Husbands, if you're a husband today, if you're in the room, if you're watching online, that is your responsibility. Sometimes it's good to listen to Rihanna because that is what Paul is saying. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave everything for her. What an awesome responsibility. But then he says, do not be harsh with them. Now, sadly, in the ancient world, harshness could involve violence. There'd be wives who would suffer terrible abuse at the hands of their husbands. Now, in England and Wales, thankfully, in 1896, a law was passed that prevented husbands from being violent towards their wives. But sadly, we know that violence, domestic violence, is still a very much a live issue, and it happens both ways. And it is so anti-gospel, it breaks God's heart. But harshness can be far more subtle than that. It can be putting down. It can be controlling. It can be a man who throws his weights around or has a big voice and shouts a lot. It can be demeaning. The list goes on. You know, harshness can just be another form of control. Control is alien to what Christ has for us as disciples. Control is not part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So today, if you are a husband, are you loving your wife as Christ loves the church? That's the question. Are you doing that? For both husbands and wives, you know, the the last 20 months has put an extra layer of pressure on, hasn't it? Um, I know for for me and Claire, we have been at home far more than we normally would be. And I think that is the same whether you're single, whether you're married. But I think for for couples, sometimes that has raised the temperature. And it's it's meant that actually things have got a bit discordant and, and a bit out of step. Can I just encourage you, if today you are here, if you're watching online and you are struggling in your marriage relationship, as Mike was saying last week, we are a body together. Please don't struggle alone. Come and chat to one of us on leadership. We can put you in touch with people who will talk. Confidentiality, um, totally confidential. But please, please don't leave things too late. Reach out to one another in the body of Christ. The next point, parents and children. Now, these verses are really geared to young children and parent relationships. They don't really deal with the the older child um, sort of scenario. Now, at first reading, these verses don't appear very radical until you realize that in the first century, um, a dog had as many rights as a child. So a child had absolutely no rights whatsoever. 
So Paul challenges that social order. He comes in and says that is not good enough, essentially. Things have got to be different in the Christian community. And so what he does is he talks about rights and responsibilities. Now, as a parent, verse 20 really appeals. If you've got the Bible in front of you, you will see why. When I was a child, I remember stumbling across verse 21 and going to my dad and offering him some very helpful points of application as to how he could tweak his behavior. Um, I don't think he was particularly blessed by that. But again, this is not the point. These are not verses about attempting to control one another. They're about causing human flourishing. Now, again, I feel really quite unqualified to offer great words of wisdom on parenting. You know, parenting is an art, not a science. But the encouragement here is that looking after children is done in a godly context. It's about bringing the life of Christ into the home. Now, interesting, Paul says children obey. And, you know, to be quite honest, as adults, we we probably know quite a lot more about life than somebody who's three or four. That makes a lot of sense to say children listen to your parents. But actually, Paul then goes on, but this is with a particular reason in mind. It's to encourage discipleship. You know, one of the saddest statistics in the UK is that young people are leaving our churches. And I'm not talking about in the ones and twos. I'm talking wholesale rejection of Christianity as a faith. And there are some alarming statistics that tell us that if that trend continues, within 10 years, it will become the norm to find churches without any young people in them at all. Many are already there, sadly, but that will become more and more the normal case. So today, if you are a parent, if you are a grandparent, if you look after children in any other context, if you have a heart for young people, so I'm hoping with all of these, that really covers all of us, let's be praying for our young people. Let's be supporting our young um, people's leaders, our children's leaders. But if if you have children in your own home, could I encourage you not to subcontract out the discipleship of your children to the church? You know, we can't treat the church as a subcontractor where we say, actually, church, you disciple my young people. We will just get on with our lives here. This passage is all about encouraging day-to-day Christian discipleship. So in the home, talk about Jesus. Reflect Jesus. Put on a worship CD in the car and make it normal to sing to Jesus. Read the stories of the Bible from a young age. Pray. If that's you, if you're in one of those situations, can I encourage you to do that? Thirdly and finally, slaves and masters. Now, before we dive in to look at what this is about, we have to say something on slavery. We can't just dive in without saying anything. Slavery in the UK was abolished in 1833. And whilst that's not in living memory, even for some of the older ones amongst us... (laughs) It is only a few generations ago, not that many generations ago, our society still lives with very real scars from the slavery that happened in our near past. We saw that, um, was it last summer when some of those um, statues were, were thrown down and things like that? And we look back into our history with horror at the dehumanizing practices of slave ships, of plantation workers, of racism, horrific, absolutely horrific on all kinds of levels. Now, in the ancient world, slavery, whilst it was bad, was not like our more recent experiences. And I think we do well to to hear this so we can understand what Paul is talking about. A lot was wrong. Slaves were not free. They couldn't do their own thing. 
but they could still flourish as a human being in many settings. Some slaves became very well educated. Slaves held quite significant jobs. Some were accountants, some were lawyers, some were doctors. Some had quite a lot of money. Some were landowners. Some had families. And the list goes on. And to, to be a slave essentially put you in a position of having a long-term boss that you couldn't get rid of. That was more what it was like for some people. Now, obviously, abuse happened. And it could be really wrong. But it is not the same system as our more recent experiences of slavery. But we might find ourselves saying, well, why doesn't Paul come against slavery first in some way before he then, like he did about you know, children and, and whatever, before he then talks around love and submission? Well, if Paul had said, bring down slavery, people would have looked at him. It's like us saying, take away the motor car, and then wondering why everyone's looking bemused. It's one of those things that were just so ingrained into the society of the time. And Spartacus had tried to get rid of slavery, and if you know your history, that didn't end that well. 17 centuries later, William Wilberforce realized that actually the gospel compelled a very different approach, that the dehumanizing of slavery meant that these verses here could not apply any longer, that you couldn't be a slave and flourish. To be a slave was the most horrific experience that a human could go through. And so armed with the writings of the prophets, armed with the social justice heart of God, he then set about freeing this country and then many other parts of the world from slavery. And it's really critical that as Christians, we stand against any modern forms of slavery as well. But Paul's concern here is how do you live working in the context in which you do? How do you honor God as an employee and an employer? And what he does really is he says, well, work if you're an employee, an employee, work as if it's to the Lord. Now, I don't know if you're in a work situation at the moment. But when you do your work, do you feel that you're doing it to Jesus? Do you see that, however much percentage of your time at work, as being your mission field, as where God has placed you to be salt and light, to be the place where your work ethic will demonstrate the love of God? Or do you see it as a means to an end to pay the gas bill? You know, it changes our perspective, what Paul says here. And then he twists it again and says, well, if you're somebody who looks after other people, if you're the master situation, if you are a manager or you're self-employed and you have people working for you, are you treating the people who work for you as Christ treats you? Are you treating them with love and care and tenderness or are you being harsh and aggressive with them? So it's the both and. Again, Paul is saying, you know, everything is about love and submission. So I want to ask you a question. Does your life whether these relationships are your reality or not, or whether it's something else, are your lives lived where actually that 95% of the time where you spend your life, whether it's in the home or at work, where actually you're submitting to Jesus and living a holy life in those places? Or do we shut the door on the church, we switch the internet off, and we forget all about it? You see, Paul would have us live as disciples at all times, and in all places, submitting first to Christ, then to each other, and then we work it out from there. Well, in a moment, I'm just going to ask the, the worship team to, to come up, but in a moment, we're going to receive communion. And as we take communion together, um, we remember Christ, who in full submission to his Father's will, gave his absolute all for each one of us. And we do that in a moment, and we'll be thankful.